but it's hard to see how your bank account will erase insecurities that you had or fears that you might have about mortality or solve that difficult question of what does it mean to live a, a richly fulfilling life. Welcome to Latitude, the show for freelancers, founders, and creators about all the non-business parts of running a successful business. I interview folks who are defining work for themselves. We look at the mindset and methods it takes to create the latitude you need to do your most creative work. Today, I'm chatting with Kay He. Kay runs Rad Reads, a one-man media company completely focused on what it means to lead an examined life. He used to be a Wall Street analyst, but has come to find far more meaning and joy through the community and content of Rad Reads. We'll talk about why he decided to give up traditional success to chase after something he didn't even know would work. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Kay. I want to kind of just jump right into it and kick it off with like a little bit of a loaded question. And so what is Rad Reads? I know that's kind of like your main business right now. Well, thanks for having me, Brian. And uh, you go you go straight for the gut punch. <laughs> uh, what is Rad Reads? Um, Rad Reads is the guide to an examined life. And so it's a collection of media properties in the sense of writing, videos, community that is really trying to answer the question, what, is it, what does it mean to live an intentional life? And to see the possibility that emerges when you answer that question across all facets of your life. Awesome. That's great. And so I guess kind of from a day to day, what does that look like for you? I spend a lot of time reading and writing. Uh, and the writing takes the form of um, primarily the Rad Reads weekly email newsletter, which I've been doing for 236 weeks. Then the blog, which I write about one essay a week. Uh, and then from that, it kind of spawns, you know, little mini offshoots that could be like tweet storms or um, loom videos, um, you know, ideas in our Slack group, responses to Reddit, subreddits, things like that. You know, I guess that would fall under your traditional kind of social media activities. And so that is, that is um, kind of the core, that's a good chunk of the activities. But the next logical question is like, well, I know that those things don't make money. So how do those activities like posting on social media make or uh, make uh, an income or make this a sustainable business? And that could be broken down into uh, a few components. And, and I'll go from kind of um, high, most profitable to, to least profit or you know, biggest part percentage of the pie to smallest percentage of the pie. Uh, so the, the major part is uh, individual coaching. And I have at any point in time about five coaching clients and it's not your typical life coaching. It's a mix of life coaching, business coaching. I don't want to say therapy because I'm nowhere close to a therapist, but uh, philosophizing about some dis- difficult existential questions uh, with a handful of executives, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, consultants, lawyers. So that is the core. It's one-on-one. It's kind of very, very... Um, very targeted uh, business. Uh, the second is a little bit more free-flowing, which is uh, I get asked to speak on a lot of these questions, specifically around the relationship between money, uh, work, and fulfillment. 
and the clients there tend to be from my old industry financial conferences, uh, investor dinners, gatherings, things like that. Um, it's a little bit more sporadic of an activity. I wish it was a little bit more consistent, but I haven't um, really made that a core focus by getting an agent and things like that. And, and we can talk about that. Uh, third is digital. And uh, my digital revenue, if you want to look at the, the breakdown by, by size of pie, uh, it's a close tie right now between online courses. I've launched two, um, one on financial independence, one on the app notion, and actually uh, donations. Uh, I have a very... Uh, I mean, you can go look at my Patreon. It's it's around you know sixteen to twenty k a year of, uh, of donation dollars, um, and then uh, much much smaller below would be uh, affiliate fees, the occasional sponsorship. Um, and so on. So that's the crux of the Rad Reads activities. I would note that I also have a part-time job as a contributing editor at the media company Quartz, which does pay me a part-time salary. So that's how I kind of put it all together. Okay. Awesome. And I mean, I think that's like super interesting that kind of the bulk comes from coaching because definitely the typical journey people want to take is like moving towards um, either digital products or software or things like that. And we'll dive into that a little more in a bit, but I want to kind of take a step back to um, sort of the beginning days of Rad Reads. Um, I know you had kind of like worked in financial services, specifically at BlackRock, and then kind of like moved out of that. So maybe you can kind of like just talk about that transition a little bit. When I was a little kid, uh, I was shy, awkward, nerdy, and very much an outsider. And most importantly, what all teenage uh, boys uh, seek at that phase of their life, like couldn't get a date. I built up this narrative for myself, which was probably amplified by the fact that I was a child of first-generation immigrants, so kind of like a strong work ethic push. But I built up this belief that I would, I'd be cool, accepted, and happy if I was successful. Uh, and so, you know, from a young age, I really kind of put my head down and, and was very, very much focused on success uh, and by extension, becoming wealthy. Uh, to the, you know, examples being like my, I spent my allowance to buy SAT books. So, I mean, that was, that was how extreme, how obsessed I was with that goal. Um, so I put my head down. I majored in computer science at Yale. I got roped into the world of investment banking in 2001, switched industries into fund of hedge funds in 2003, and did that for 14 years uh, through the credit crisis, uh, a combination of a lot of hard work and, uh, and a lot of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, got what they call battlefield promotions, which is when, you know, things are bad. And so they, they cut upper ranks and promote middle-level ranks. Like that really kind of boosted my career, right place, right time. And I evaluated hedge funds. I ran a team. I had a lot of autonomy. I got the promotions. I got paid relatively well. Uh, for context, like, you know, I lived in New York. I live in LA now. But, you know, I had enough savings that I could, you know, take a two years off when I ultimately decided to, decided to quit. And um, the reason, one of the reasons, there were a few reasons why I quit. One was um, this plan that I had put into place of success and kind of climbing the corporate ladder, it turned out to be a little bit shallow. 
and you know, there's so many studies about this, but the one that I love is um, it's a study of people with over a million dollars, so like people from a million to ten million, I think. And then the survey goes, um, how much money would you need to to self-identify as a happy ten on a scale of one to ten? And so they ask the people with one million, and they're like double. And they ask the people with two million, and their answer is double. They ask the people with five million, it's double. And they ask the people with ten million, it's double. Um, and I started not that I was in that range of uh, uh, of wealth, but I started to feel that too, where I'd get this bonus, and I would just think that you know the skies would part, um, you know my mind would be calm and relaxed, and all of a sudden fulfillment would just snap into place. Uh, and all that happened was like I got like slightly nicer clothes and got a few nice bottles of wine when I went out to dinner with my wife. Uh, it was very mean reverting in that you like basically got a little spike in happiness and then you dro- drop right back down to the baseline slightly higher. And I was like, this feels off. So that was the first thing. The second was I've always been a tinkerer. Um, I, I, don't, I never really thought of myself as entrepreneurial, but I've always just like, side projects, you know, well before, I mean, I'm 40. So well before the word side hustles was like even a a term, they kept me creatively engaged. They were fun. I got to play with technology. So I always had side projects when I worked at BlackRock and they were starting to just take up more of my time. And then the last one was that there was a mindset in on Wall Street that I didn't like. And the Wall Street was for, for every winner, there's a loser. It was a very zero sum game mindset. And I just thought it brought the worst out of people. And I think with time, I started to realize, like, there's so many instances where a rising tide lifts all boats. But if your entire industry is predicated on the belief that there's got to be a winner and a loser, um, you're just not going to see the world in the way that I'd like to see it. You know, I I guess we disagree on our worldviews. Uh, and so those things, plus the combination of like being a, you know, a father and, and kind of thinking about your age and quarter of life crises or whatever you want to call them, they all kind of came to a head around 2015. I was 35 years old and I decided to pull the plug. I, I put, you know, roughly two, 18 months to two years of savings aside saying, I'm going to go, I owe it to myself to figure it out. And that's when I took the jump. Uh, that was almost five years ago. And so I think there's kind of like two topics that I kind of want to pull out of that. Um, The first one being kind of that expectation of like wherever you're at financially, like double is kind of like what you're going for. Um, When we know that like there's research that says like roughly around 80K is where happiness kind of tops out. You have like your base expenses um, and kind of like some fun money to play with basically. Were there a lot of ways, and you kind of touched on a few of these, just that like the expectation of kind of like following this path was different than the reality of it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the first thing that you realize, and, and I always knew this about myself, is that buying more stuff doesn't make you happy. Right. And especially I'm not a stuff guy. I mean, I have a an Acura now because we live in LA, but like I don't like fancy cars. I don't like fancy watches. I do like fashion. So like I will splurge on like expensive t-shirts occasionally and uh sneakers. I'm a sneakerhead. Um but buying nice stuff doesn't um make me happy. And I think in general, people know that. Uh so then the next thing is buying experiences make you happy. Uh or happier. 
And that is something that I started to realize, but there's a catch when you work on Wall Street or when you work at the corporate nine to five, you start to realize that you don't own your time. Uh, and so I think what I, I don't think it was clear to me then, but it's very clear to me now is that what I really wanted was money to get me control of my time more so than like wanting to be an entrepreneur. And then what I realized after you didn't ask this explicitly was I love working. So I actually need less money because I enjoy working as long as I can (laughs) control my time. And so I couldn't have forecasted that that was the path that I was going to go on. Um, But that's kind of where I landed. I would also say that, that the other thing is from an existential question, right? If you need money to build up your self of self sense of self-worth, it's I mean, we can talk about it intellectually, right? Like money won't boost your sense of self-worth. It could give you a little extra more confident, but it's hard to see how your bank account will erase, you know, insecurities that you had or fears that you might have about mortality or solve that, you know, that that difficult question of what does it mean to live a, a richly fulfilling life? Like, you know, I, and to really put that in perspective, I, in my coaching practice, I ask people, if you got a billion dollars tomorrow, how would you spend the next five years of your life? Because that's a lot of hours to fill and you can't just do one thing. You can't just travel. Most people don't want to travel for five straight years. Most people don't want to spend five straight years with their kids. So every, every waking moment that is. What that reveals is that and myself included, they don't actually know what makes a fulfilling life. They don't even know what makes them happy. And, you know, it's just easy to, to default to money because it's convenient and it's a known quantity, commodity or known, known, it's culturally known. Uh, but when you peel that back, it's actually difficult. I think most people haven't given themselves given themselves the mind space, and I hadn't either to peel that back themselves. Well, and yeah, just in the way that like money is measurable in kind of the way that like happiness is a little more abstract. Um, but I think kind of recognizing that it is like what you were buying was your time. And so like even for me, kind of I, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, like my journey has been fairly similar in that like a little earlier in my career, I was kind of like in the finance area, um, did the Silicon Valley thing for a while and was like making plenty of money, but like working way more than I wanted to, but like, but enjoying the work, um, until it kind of like turned into something different. But I think that's like also kind of interesting that like, I think we're both sort of problem solvers. Um, and so even if it's not like the thing, you can still kind of like get joy out of that. Um, so was that kind of like, it sounds like it was almost like an ongoing process of sort of discovering that um, your time in financial services was like not necessarily the thing because there was like good aspects of it too. I think that you need to experience it, right? So you need to get a, a taste of what it's like. And, and 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 that's part of of your path but at the same time you know i, I call it the, the pebble in your shoe right where it's like it's 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 uncomfortable but not uncomfortable enough to stop walking take it out and like change your shoe and and i think that at some point 
you either take the, sh- you got to take the shoe off or you just acknowledge that you're walking with the shoe on forever. And I just, I just felt like, and I think this is where having a kid kicked in where it's like, this feels a little bit off. It doesn't feel wrong. It just feels off. And I don't want my kid, my kids, my wife, I don't want someone that's like, I've never been a person where something's a little bit off and I just brush it aside you know, in my work, right? Like there's like some little detail, you know, some little detail that's off. I'm not brushing it off. I am picking at it, probing, turning it, you know, seven ways till Sunday until I've, I've examined it from every uh, possible angle. Why wouldn't I do that with the thing that is by far the most important thing in my life, my life? And I think that that's, uh, you know, you're scared of the unknown. It just takes time. And I think we're not taught, you know, the Western capitalist kind of professionally driven world. We're just not taught that A, how to do it and B, that it's important. And so I felt lucky that I saw a crack and I just somehow I fell into the crack and that, that thus began the great unraveling or the unfurling, however you want to, uh, however you want to describe it. Well, and so, I mean, it sounds like obviously it did kind of work out and it was the right call. Um, I'm curious though, kind of like with what you know now, if you could have um, kind of gone back and like made that decision sooner, but potentially had like less financial security. Um, would you would you take that choice? I, I think so. That's that's like a complicated question because, um, and it, and and I'll give a disclaimer after I answer it. So so I had a lot of financial security, but I also had a lot of financial liabilities. So. You know, I had one kid. We know we wanted to have two and possibly three. My wife's an artist, so that kind of knocks her out of the healthcare game and you know the like real money game. You know, she's not back. She's not pursuing art that is like big bucks art. And so, I guess that that would be like my first. You know, it's almost like you know we read the courage to be disliked uh, together in our book club, where it's like the goal is to not you know, shake the, you know, uh, shake the snow globe too much. I'm forgetting the analogy. And so the, the excuse is that, well, I don't have enough financial security. Right. Um, but at the, so, but at the flip side, I, I, I will say that like, yeah, not a lot of people can say, you know, I don't need to work for two years, uh, and I can cover my bills kid or, or no kid. Um, so absolutely. That helped, um, and I made a lot of financial decisions along the way. So many of which were related to my career choice, but a lot of them were, you know, investing decisions, budgeting, you know, saving decisions, things like that. Um, I think, though, that when you're younger, and again, now I'm just speculating because I, I can't, I can't know for sure. I think that when you're younger, um, you have more energy for sure. When you have a young kid, like you, you just have less time. Like, full stop you know, unless you are very clear about how much or how little time you want to spend with your kid. But at the same time, when you're younger, um, the opportunity cost feels lower, right? So I walked away from a very high paying job. Like when you're 25, you're walking away from maybe not an entry level job, but from like, you, you, like the sunk cost of it's much lower too. And again, I think a lot of this is psychological. It actually doesn't matter in the mm-hmm. in the longer term. But I think that the things that you're walking away from, you have less commitments 
um, when you're when you're younger. You know, you, you might be dating, and but your wife, your future wife, is you know working, has her own separate bank account. So I would say that that there is there is that uh, inevitable tension, and I do think that with age you become more risk averse uh, because you just you just know more. Um, and so I think that the risk aversion can, uh, can hurt, uh, as well. But again, I think a lot of these are just stories that we tell ourselves to kind of retrofit the narrative that is convenient to, you know, said person. Um, so I think, uh, so I think it actually, it, it doesn't matter. I think it's more about like, do you have the guts to do it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think like it's always going to be hard. Um, like anytime you're kind of going into the unknown, like it's going to be challenging regardless of kind of your financial situation or like your family, family situation or anything like that. Because, um, not to, to cut you off because a lot of it is an identity question as well. And I think as you're older, your identities are more locked in. I think that's dangerous. I try not to let that happen to myself. But you know, you become like a suburban dad, right? You know, and like suburban dads aren't bloggers, you know, like they're, they are lawyers. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when you're younger, your identities are more fluid. But again, you, I would like to be uh, on my deathbed with a very fluid identity. Again, I think it's less age specific, but I think age will add constraints, uh, around, around the kind of expectations. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, definitely. And the idea of identity has actually come up like in a couple of different episodes. And because it is like you had this identity as like, not only someone that was successful, but like someone that like knew what was going on and someone that could like easily provide for their family or maybe not easily, but like, um, you had kind of like those options or whatever, Versus like you're still doing what's best for you in the long run, but it takes away all of those kind of things that like are a part of who you are, basically. Absolutely. And I think another one um, is in kind of New York City hedge fund industry. Like I had high status, like people came to me and my, you know, our group to like kiss the ring and ask us for money and take us to the Super Bowl, you know, like that, you know, that matters, you know, that matters. I'd I'd be lying if I said it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter enough for me to stay, but it definitely matters. Mm -hmm. No one's taking me to the Super Bowl now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and (laughs) I mean, like going back to the question of like, basically like, would you have done it sooner? I mean, it sounds like the financial part, like probably feels like a big part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. but maybe it is like all of these other kind of like identity things and like mindset things and other aspects that like maturity totally totally there's a running joke on wall street that says what's the best time to leave wall street um and the the answer is after next year's bonus which is like (laughs) no one stays no one leaves now before we jump into the next question i want to pause for a minute and talk a bit about podia podia is a platform for creating and hosting online courses digital downloads and memberships more than that though Podia is a company that believes in and supports creators. They don't just build course software, they really enable people like us to do the work we love. I'm a longtime Podia user, along with a few of the guests on the show. My Podia course has directly led to thousands of email subscribers and five figures in revenue. As a designer, I definitely have a tendency of tweaking and perfecting everything, but most of the time that's not what actually makes a difference. 
Podium makes it easy to focus on creating content that's useful and valuable rather than getting distracted by design edits or a long technical setup process. It doesn't matter if you're an expert developer or creating your first ever digital product. Podium makes it fast and easy to create something that not only looks good, but converts well. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably working on creating something. Whether that's an app, a course, or an entirely new business, creating something out of nothing is hard, but Podium makes creation a little bit easier. They're offering 15% off for life to listeners of the Latitude podcast. To get your discount or to just learn a bit more, go to podia.com slash latitude, or there's a link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the interview. Would you say that there were things that you kind of learned during your time on Wall Street that have carried over to Rad Reads, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, I don't think I knew them at the time, but I, I can see them now, right? There's a lot. So to your listeners, there's, there's a lot of our armchair quarterbacking here, narrative retrofitting, whatever you want to call it. But I, I have seen some themes clearly emerge. One is that I love teaching. And that's not something that comes to mind when you think about Wall Street, but I would do like lunch and learns and one-on-ones and, you know, all this stuff. Like Wall Street is not a culture of, of like good management. It's like, it goes back to that zero-sum mindset. It's like, why would I waste time on you and I could be making more money on this? And so it actually, little side note, in Wall Street, it was, if you became a manager, it was actually like a pejorative, it was like a, a notch against you because it means that you weren't a money, there were the money makers. And if you weren't a money maker, then you became a manager. So it's actually viewed as a negative thing. And so I love teaching. I love one-on-ones. I, I, you know, well, long before all the stuff on radical candor and all the one-on-one, you know, I did read Andy Grove. That was inspired by his work. Uh, but I loved one-on-ones. So I love mentoring. So that was one thing. And, and if you look now, like so much about Rad Reads, the writing is a form of teaching. I'm actually teaching now. Um, so that was a thread that, that has emerged in hindsight. Uh, the second is um, what I call uh, the difference between heroic consistency and being consistently heroic. Uh, and I've written about this in the past, and it's I didn't make up that that um, paradigm as Brad Stolberg did. Consist uh, consistently heroic is the to use a baseball analogy, the person that wants to hit home runs all the time, every time they step up to bat. And being uh, consistently heroic, heroically consistent, is the person that just wants to get on base. And you know, you compound getting on base for fifteen years that will pay off for dividends. And so you saw that I bought my first share of the S&P 500 when I was 17 years old. I sold my Magic the Gathering collection and and bought S&P shares on Vanguard. Haven't sold those shares today. So my 17-year-old self gifted my 40-year-old self like $40,000. So that's one example. I was a skateboarder. Skateboarding is the is the most uh constantly, uh, you know, consistently, uh, heroically consistent sport, right? It takes a year to learn how to ollie, another year to kickflip. I surf now. Uh, I apply that in Wall Street with like my meetings and so on. Um, networking philosophy tied to teaching what I know, make people around you better. Very much the Adam Grant give and take mindset. Didn't know it was called that give and take came out, I think in 2012. Uh, it had been my philosophy accidentally since, since 2003 because I wasn't into that zero-sum thinking. Um, and then the last one is, um, are you familiar with the phrase collecting string? Mm-mm. It's a journalist phrase where uh, like a good investigative reporter just like looks for little pieces of string 
And once they find something, they pull at it and then the story kind of unravels. And so re- reporters, they, they just like, they listen to conversation. They hear that like little tidbit and then they like, they pull on it a little and they see if there's something there. I realized that I was really good at collecting string in that I found the little thing, could be a little passion project, could be a little tidbit of information, could be a fact about somebody. And I just kind of pull out and pull out, just see what was there with a lens of curiosity. Uh, and again, that's that's why it's hard to, you know, that's why you got me with your first question. It's hard to pinpoint rad reads on something is because like, I just like to write about things that I find interesting and they do unify around a grand theme. But like, sometimes I just want to write about, you know, this little thing about my marriage, you know, it's just, that's interesting to me. Well, and I mean, I guess kind of going back to the consistency thing that like, obviously like that consistency is almost what has kind of brought that stuff together. And in the same way, we're kind of realizing like, okay, after the fact is when you're kind of discovering that education is like, after the fact, you're seeing that like, it's not necessarily the topics or like the themes, but it is like showing up. And obviously there's lots of folks that are kind of like following your work and supporting it in plenty of different ways. And I would just add, thank you. And and I would just add to that. It's showing up, but there's another part to it is, uh, is getting out of your own way. Mm -hmm. Right. So like take the S and P 500 thing. It's like showing up is like doing the monthly dollar cost averaging and getting out of your own way is not checking the balances on, unless on a quarterly basis, you know, uh, Rad reads is like showing up is like writing the thing, but not obsessing about the metrics once it's done. Right. And just like thinking about making it better. And so like that, I like, because I think that just showing up, I do think that that's a big part of the battle, but I also think we're our worst, our worst enemies in so many things. Uh, And so I think the two together uh, are, are what, what makes it uh, magical. And so, I mean, I think I'm definitely guilty of like, if I see a big spike in like traffic or newsletter subscribers or anything like that, like that's like, can be really inspiring, but it doesn't necessarily like mean anything sometimes, I guess. Um, So do you have sort of like ways that you are able to detach yourself from some of those metrics? I think I had to learn the hard way. I like I saw, I saw both sides, right? So when the CNN article, Oprah for millennials came out, uh, the newsletter went from like 2,000 to 12,000. It's like 9,000 boost in one weekend. And that felt amazing. I was like hitting control R, control R, you know, on MailChimp, just watching <laughs> the new ones come in. I mean, before that, it was like 15 a week. But then after the dust settled, nothing had changed. Like my income hadn't changed. My number of job opportunities hadn't changed. A few agents had circled, but nothing really materialized from that. And then it's a little bit like the bonus thing we were talking about earlier. It's like, it feels great. uh, And then until uh, the why. So, so that would be one thing. The second is that with my different like uh, accounts, like I try to forget my passwords. Sometimes I don't put them in my password manager, just, just to like make it really hard to just check them. And so there's, so people, and this, we could extrapolate this broadly to productivity. So people are like, well, how do you stay off your phone on the weekend, you know, when you're with your kids and all that? And there's, there's grayscale and, you know, removing face study, all things that I do. But there's actually an easier way to stay off your phone is to just plan a lot of fun shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and you'll stay off your phone, like, or go surfing, or you know, like, or go rock climbing, you know, or go hiking, um, go to your friend to dinner with your like long dinners with your friends. So, so I think that when I find myself like check obsessing about metrics, usually there's like a deeper existential craving there, mm-hmm. um, and so I try to investigate like what's that existential craving. Sometimes it's just like you're doing the wrong thing, like you just shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and then I'll just cut bait, you know, and, and just say like, yeah, so, so move on, you know, or I'll, I'll look at the existential craving and then why do followers matter? It's like, oh, cause you have a deep fear of irrelevance. And we're like, so follower count turns into like lifelong lasting relevance. <laughs> I'm like, you kind of see like the absurdity of it all. And then you're like, oh, okay, like that's kind of silly. Yeah, well, totally. And I mean, I think like you kind of use the examples of like, hiking or climbing or like whatever fun thing you do outside of work. But I think it's like equally translatable to like whatever you're doing in your business as well. Like I know for me, like definitely the most productive time that like times that I've had is like when I give myself permission to like work on the things that are exciting rather than try to like continue to push the things that I feel like are important. Yeah. Which is why I, I mean, good thing I don't have a product manager I am the product manager, CEO, CMO, and COO. When I like get down a rabbit hole, you know, I'm careful to not go too deep. But when I go down, and I think my intuition's gotten better, like I can kind of align. Like there's like a zeitgeist right now, and I find it fun. Like just go. Like mm-hmm. you know, a, an example I could give now um, is that like I've been obsessed with Notion, right? And, and I like, I love the app. I I made a course on it. Um, and there's all these nagging things I should do. Like my, my website looks like crap. Like I just moved to ConvertKit. I could do like all these new onboarding sequences. Like there's so many things that I should be doing, but the momentum is pushing me so strongly to like, just like nail this notion thing. Then I'm just like, you know what? I'll clean up my homepage when, whenever the time comes, I'm not being compelled to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to be careful with that approach to not go down useless rabbit holes. Uh, which is like the downside of this approach, but you know, so may, so be it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and yeah, and I agree. And like, for me, it's having those regular kind of check-ins and that can be daily, weekly, monthly, whatever. Um, but kind of revisiting like, okay, is, is this actually moving the needle? Um, and like, you can kind of like, I feel like too, you can kind of find like the things that are having greater impact can start to like be more motivating just because they are having greater impact too. And so kind of going with the, the notion thread, um, you talk a lot about kind of like specific tools. Like I know you use OmniFocus and notion. You've talked about Airtable a little bit, but I think you're very aware to kind of talk about the systems behind the actual productivity tools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so kind of, I guess I'll leave this fairly open-ended, but like, what does a productivity system like mean to you? Um, and so when I think about, it's the classic, and I've done this so many times, right? I've bought an, uh, an iPad to try to become more creative, right? I bought new gym clothes to get more fit. And the productivity tool, I think actually wrestles was like a much more existential question, like how can I have more time? And so for me, uh, and this has been, you know, my, my productivity system is kind of a miss a, a mashup of um david allen's G- getting things done gtd tiago forte's building a second brain 
uh, and Cal Newport's deep work. It's like that's kind of the mashup. Oh, and I would add one more, which is um, Tony Schwartz's kind of energy versus time management, right? Like manage mm-hmm. your energy versus managing your time. I haven't read that book in a while. Um, and so mine is kind of a mashup of those principles, but really it's simple. It's like, can you reduce cognitive load? That's one question that I need to answer, right? I mean, it's the, the David, David Allen's book is like the stress-free art of productivity or the art of stress-free productivity, right? Like the best system reduces my stress. And I would say most people's productivity tools might actually increase their stress level. <laughs> so that's one. The second is, does it let you focus on the work that is the most impactful to your life, to your situation, to your family? Um, and so, again, that's a mix of all of those systems. I think, you know, deep work uh, being a good one, uh, being kind of an anchor tenant there. And then the last is, um, given that we're knowledge workers, how easy is it to access your information, mm-hmm. right? And so, and that's, you know, a lot of like the Tiago Forte type uh, type work. And again, the underlying principle, and I didn't, it sounds so simple. It's like the underlying principle for me is, um, I want to spend, I want to spend time on with the people I love on the things I love with a clear mind, right? That is, that is kind of like the anchor of my productivity, you know, the, the, the overall tenets of the system. And then things like, you know, the, inbox of a GTD lets me uh, kind of have that clarity, right? Or the, the uh, deep work focus lets me like be present, you know, with the people I love and the things that I love and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, and I mean, that makes perfect sense. And like, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately too, is that like, you have to kind of find that deeper motivation and like spend the time and effort to find that, um, Otherwise, kind of your morning routine or like your Pomodoros or like all of these little kind of like hacks that like you said you do and like I do like, (laughs) um, but they don't really have the impact that like, I think they could have rather than like knowing that like you're doing what you're doing. So you can work on what you love and spend um, time with the people that you love. So, and I think all that is, you know, my friend who's a, a CMO, who's like a marketing wizard, he says all of the, you know, marketing is trained to sell you um, material solutions to emotional problems. (laughs) Why do you want that pair of, um, of uh, like those, the the new gym accessory is because you want to look good so that you can feel loved. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And so if you understand what's at the end of that continuum versus like the, you know, the, the carrot that keeps moving, uh, uh, I think it, it, you, you, you go, you go a long way and, and you realize that the system that I described to you, like with the exception of the knowledge management piece, like you could run it with a pen and, and paper and some index cards, right? <laughs> totally. And so then I guess since you do sort of talk about like such a wide variety, um, of things through rad reads, I'm curious just to kind of get some of your thoughts, feelings, um, just general response to, I have sort of a handful of topics that you've talked about at least a little bit um, and kind of hear like what you think about them. Um, so the first one is going to be optionality. I think optionality is 
is a good thing. Now I'm going to get finance geeky on you, right? <laughs> so the option is the right to buy a security at a certain price. And so, uh, so it's the right to buy something. And so the right to make something happen, the, the purchase being the thing that happens. So uh, if you get a, a law degree, if you get an MBA, it's the right to have you know this type of job, and so what I what I think that optionality. So I think you know in the Western capitalist society we're very much encouraged to accumulate options, especially free options or mispriced options. But I think that that misses the point is that options become more valuable if there's volatility, right? So if you're just like doing the riskless thing, the, the then there's no volatility, so your options are worthless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and then the second thing, which is related, is you actually have to exercise the option to make it uh, to make it worthwhile to to use it, right? Like if you collect a lot of options but you never actually exercise them, you just leave. You either spent a lot of premium and they expire worthless, uh, or you just they don't do anything to your life. And so I think that I think optionality is another form of a material solution to an emotional problem. And that emotional problem is like I don't know what makes me happy. And so the solution is let me collect a lot of options. But at some point you got to figure out what's what's going to make you happier. What's the type of work that's going to make you fulfilling? Like you can't keep getting more master's degrees. You can't keep switching companies. Uh, because you've just accrued, you know, you, you got to commit, right? I think people who look for options are scared of committing. And I do think that some of the most impactful work uh, happens when, when, when you commit. Mm-hmm. So basically, like, it can be valuable, but it hits diminishing returns pretty quick, it sounds like. Absolutely. And again, the, like, it's the why. Like, why do you want options, right? Uh, and I think everyone, you know, could be financial security. It's like, at some point, though, you know, if you're collecting options for financial security, that's akin to the person who's so scared of, like, being, you know, getting into an accident that they buy all these insurance policies and they never leave their house, Right. It's like, what kind of life does that, is that really the life that you want? Mm -hmm. And so I guess this is kind of fairly related then, but, um, curiosity is the next one. Man, curiosity is the gift. It's the, just the gift that keeps giving. We live in such an interconnected system, but we also make it live in a system that is very mystical. Like a lot of things are unexplainable. I'm not a particularly religious person, but I have a, a budding spirituality and just the, you know, just just, you know, you take something super pragmatic, like how could I be an entrepreneur? You know, I was saying earlier, I felt like an accidental creative, right? I never identified, but you just start being like, oh, you can write. Oh, there's WordPress. Oh, you need a logo. Oh, what makes a good narrative arc? Oh, what makes a TED talk? Oh, what's a good story? Oh, how do you collect stories? Oh, what, you know, like what voice should you use? Like, then you're like, wow, like you just, you know, collecting string, you pulled on that string and next thing you know, you're a writer. Um, and I think that that's just, there's so many things that are non-professional, whether it's hobbies or books or stories or people's lives that are, that are so fascinating. And then on the, on the mystical side, there's just, there's so many things in life that don't make sense. There are things that are hard to explain with words still. Um, and, and just that, you know, I think this is something that's come with age is that kind of that gray space between, you know, things that should make sense that don't make sense. A lot of them are tragic and a lot of them are beautiful at the same time. I guess there's a lot of like dualism in, in that is just, I don't know, that used to s- stress the crap out of me. Um, 
And now I think with age, I just, I, I think that there's the like textures of life become more beautiful to me in, mm-hmm. in that regard. And so um, you obviously have kind of a pretty strong background in like a lot of the um, kind of financial side of things, budgeting, that sort of thing. Uh, and fire financial independence, retire early is definitely having kind of a moment in the past year or so. Um, so financial independence, uh, material solution to an emotional problem. If you look at the principles of fire, they are insanely sound, right? Monitor your save. It's, it's like your basic financial fare, right? Uh, save a lot of money, grow your income, um, invest diligently, low cost, don't pay taxes. Like it's actually not that crazy, right? Um, what I think is, um, so I think that that fire is a very, I think the principles are very sound. I think the implementation, um, I think people can get uh, a little tricked up, but I also see people that live it very wisely. Like you could say to me, you're like, hey, you you fire, right? Like you bought stocks in you know 1996 and you haven't sold them and you do live off part of the dividends like that's fire to me i'm like sure but then i would say like i work 60 hours a week uh so that's not fire to a lot of fire people what i would say about fire is is i would ask like is the why right if you want to fire because you absolutely hate your boss there are much easier ways to have a life with a wonderful boss than to uh, save 80% of your income. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but if you fire and if you are very precise about the kind of life that you want to live, which I don't think that's the majority of fire people, but again, I actually don't know that many fire people there. I just read Reddit a lot. Um, so if you are precise about how you want it, like if you want to be intentional about your life and fire is the tool that builds in that intentionality, F yeah, man, more power <laughs> to you. Like, that's amazing. That is empowerment in all sense of the term, right? Because it's financial empowerment tied with purpose empowerment, tied with familial empowerment, time tied with, you know, joy, you know, happiness uh, empowerment. Like, I think that if you put all those pieces together, like, like good on you. Um, and I think that fire is a, is an amazing tool if it's used in like in a much uh, more elaborate, um, tapestry. Mm -hmm. So just kind of making sure that like those motivations are kind of like what you actually think they are almost, um, which I think has definitely been sort of like a theme of this whole conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then to kind of like wrap it up with one more, which again, probably touches on like similar things, um, but success. It's extremely, extremely personal. Um, and again, we were talking earlier about identity before we recorded about identities, but we're, you know, we're mimetic, we're lazy mimetic creatures, right? Where, you know, one person says, hey, that guy has a Range Rover, you must be happy. Then a bunch of primates you know, in the neighboring, you know, in the vicinity, then decide to get Range Rovers uh, because that, you know, they're trying to mimet- to to, to uh, imitate the behavior that made, you know, the one person happy. 
Um, I also think if you read any behavioral, you know, Kahneman uh, type type uh, research that, um, you know, the system one and the system two, right, where their intuitive system is very primal. Um, and so I think that uh, what I'd say about success is don't be lazy about defining it because um, because success is really different, right? Some people are so close to their parents and they want, they want every, they want nothing more for the like eternal joy. And they're very proactive. I love my parents. So I'm not super proactive about bringing them joy every single day, but some people are. So success for them should be some version of it should be how are they able to deliver that to their parents, right? And I think a big disconnect that I always see on success with many of my clients and people, rad readers, is that people say, I work my ass off to provide for my kids. Um, and then you talk to the spouse or the partner, and then, you, and then the partner would say, if we made 20% less money and saw more of dad or mom, the collective family unit would be way happier. So that's... so." you have a a dissonance in success, right? You're saying you want to be successful from like a provision perspective. But my hunch in that specific example is that success is a mean of satisfying your um, intellectual curiosity, uh, the pursuit of status, uh, the pursuit, you know, of challenging work, uh, of being around smart people. None of those are bad things, but don't get the two confused because that that um dissonance has a cost to everyone that you care about and so but if you're clear about success um then like it's like a ship that with the winds like right at its sail you know you, you don't know exactly like where you're going but the direction is solid and it's like it's a state of flow and so you know i think a lot about what success means to me and i actually have like a little cheat sheet if i may share um with you because i i, I too when the neighbor gets the range rover you know start sniffing around and, and being like wait i just have an, an acura like what does that say about me um so uh, the way I think about success is um, the ability to express myself creatively every day, um, showing up as the best possible husband, father, and colleague, sh- sh- should I have them, um, consciously not hanging out or working with people who bring negative energy into my world, um, having control of my time never feeling rushed and the ability to surf every day. And look, it takes some amount of money to have those things. Uh, mostly the last one, the surfing part, but like, let's just carve the surfing out of it because I say that like half tongue in cheek, all those other things are m- much more about the decisions that you make in your life, in your career, um, how you choose, who you choose to associate with, what brings you joy. Those things are, they're hard questions. And again, it goes back to the fire. I don't think they require a ton of money. They definitely don't require a ton of money to start asking them. They mm-hmm. might require some money to start answering and implementing them, but don't put the cart before the horse. 
ask the question. And these aren't questions that have like binary answers, right? These are very complex textured questions that will reveal themselves to you over the course of your life. So ask yourself those questions, see where that takes you. And then maybe to, to take that fire point, then use your money to orient towards those things, right? If it means paying a premium to live closer to your work so that you see your family more, that's a great decision. You're not wasting your money on rent. That might be the best way you could spend your money. The fire people might, might say you violated the rent to income ratio rule. But I would say you have doubled down on your core value, which is to spend as much time as possible with your family. F yeah, you should do that. And so for folks that are trying to kind of get better at asking those questions, which I think is kind of like an ongoing process, um, what's kind of, if you could distill it down to like one step that folks could take, um, what would you say? Um, anytime that they are in a bit, in a situation where something feels off center, ask yourself, why do I feel this way? Okay. Perfect example. Uh, my notion course yesterday. I get nervous before, you know, there's a lot on the line. Second time, I'm feeling nervous. Like, why do I feel nervous? Because um, I want to do a good job. Okay. Well, you're prepared. Why else might you feel nervous? I don't like, I like pleasing people. So, so, the, so the tip would be ask why and then keep asking why. Why do you like pleasing people? Because I want to be known as a good person. Why is it important to be known as a good person? Because um, it's a core value of mine. And then, so you get down to it and, and you're like, wait a minute. So then, you, then you like trace your step backwards. You're like, I'm noticed nervous about an online course because if I don't do a good job, people might reject me as a bad human being. Something seems off here. <laughs> and you could do that. You could, anytime mm -hmm. something feels off, like you're, you're pushing yourself a little too hard on your workouts. Why? Because I want to look good. Or, or, some, or uh, yeah, I want to look good. Well, why do you want to look good? It's like, because, you know, I, like I said, I want to feel loved or I'm scared I won't get a date. And why does that scare you? I don't want to be alone. Like, is working out, is that extra rep going to prevent you from being alone? And then that gets into like a much deeper question. It's like, why are you afraid of being alone? These are like, these are the questions that, that one asks themselves their entire life. Um, but, but at least you get some separation from that or it's like extra rep being alone. Okay. There's, there's more to it than, mm -hmm. than that. Right. And it just kind of relieves the pressure. And yeah, so I mean, I think it's just a matter of like looking at things more objectively almost and kind of asking that why question is a good way to do it. Yeah, objectively curious. I say compassionately, compassionately curious. Mm -hmm. Like don't be like, you suck because you can't do that extra like rep. It's like, isn't it interesting that you can't do this this rep today? Something's blocking you. What might that be? You know, like 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 a sweet, like the sweet professor with like the suspenders and the bow tie. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so kind of the last question, how do you define latitude in your life and in your business? I think it's just the surface of what's possible and trying to always expand what's possible with 
curiosity, with systems, with hard work, with playfulness, with teaching. Um, you know, I would like, I, I love the, aper- the, the analogy of widening the aperture of a camera, right? Where, you know, you just, as you open it up and expand it, you just kind of see kind of like the beauty, the beauty of life, the possibility of life, the richness of life that we have so much already. Um, that's what latitude evokes for me. Great. Well, um, thank you so much for being on the show, Kay. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's been a lot of fun talking with you. Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to listening to it. Yeah. And if folks want to kind of learn more about Rad Reads, more about what you're doing, where would you um, say they should go to check that out? Uh, number one place I would say is go to radreads.co and um, pop in your email there for our email list. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, I'll put the, it's a long handle, uh, but I'll put that in, uh, in the show notes. Uh, and on Instagram, I'm radreads, uh, radreads.co. Uh, so radreads.co and the mailing list will just kind of pop you into the whole ecosystem. And there are uh, many, many moving parts of it. Great. And I would say to the, um, the Slack group for me is definitely like one of the places where I find myself hanging out the most online of like any little Slack groups or community. So that's a good one to check out. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Brian, for that. All right. Well, thanks again, Kay. Really enjoyed it. All right. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. So here's how Latitude works. It's the full interview you just finished listening to. Then next time, I'll break down some of the topics and themes we just discussed. This short, focused, and extremely actionable episode goes even deeper into some of what we've covered today. Make sure to hit subscribe to get that and other upcoming interviews. This is also the part of the show where I'm supposed to ask you to rate and review the podcast. Instead, I want to make you a little more actionable about applying some of the things we've talked about today. So send a tweet, message, email, or carrier pigeon to a friend about the one thing you learned and how you'll apply it to your business this week. Or send it to me on Twitter at Zavzen. Links and more are in the show notes at createlatitude.com slash podcast. And I just want to remind you that you already have the tools you need to create a little more latitude in your day, your business, and your life. 